1: President Trump tweeting, Google search results for Trump news shows only the viewing slash reporting of fake news media. In other words, they have it rigged for me and others so that almost all stories and news is bad. Fake CNN is prominent, Republican, conservative and fair media is shut out. Illegal. 96 percent of results on Trump news are from... Give me a look, Pam. I'm, I'm going to keep reading it because it's all just seconds ago. And this addresses our next discussion, which is Google and searches. Uh, basically, it concludes with this is a very serious situation, will be addressed. Shira Oveday, Bloomberg Opinion, technology columnist, joining us now. Google shares didn't initially respond much to uh, President Trump's earlier comments on this, but then did after his economic advisor, Larry Kudlos, the White House, was examining this. What do you make of this?
2: Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, look, the core of the president's tweet there is that he believes legitimate news sources, including CNN, are biased against him. Right. So his beef is really with CNN and with other legitimate news sources, not necessarily with Google. Um, although what he's pointing out right is that Google is surfacing legitimate news about him uh, and he doesn't like that. So look, I, I get it, but also the, the the problem is that this is now Google's problem.
1: Well Google actually released a statement talking about the algorithms that it has to uh, generate these search results. How do they determine
2: that? I mean, it could there be even a political motivation here? So the problem is that there is a germ of truth in what the president says, which is that the ways that Google and Facebook too surface news and information is by design a black box that we don't know. We on the outside don't exactly know how Google determines these 10 blue links will appear higher than those 10 blue links. And, you know, that. Again, the, the black box algorithms of those companies makes it more likely for people to believe, rightly or wrongly, that the information surfaced by Google or Facebook it has some bias inherent in it. And it's, it, algorithms are biased. Uh, the question is, is it biased against conservative voices like the president? And I don't think that's the case.
0: Shira, can search results be manipulated by third parties?
2: I mean, manipulated is um, boy. It's a little bit of a of a skewed word. Look, there are legitimate ways, including search engine optimization tactics, right, to make to make certain web links appear higher in google search results right, right. And, and we i mean Bloomberg that would not have anything companies. to do with
0: google that would have to do with third parties that for whatever reason they want a certain product or service that's to right. be listed higher so that's that right. when you type in the name of let's say you want an airfare that's right then it will take you there
2: right so if you google you know running shoes brooklyn right, right there are companies that make sure that their websites are uh, optimized in a certain right. way. Right, so and they you can buy keywords. And you can buy keywords, although that's a, a different issue, right? Correct. That's more about uh, paid ads on Google rather than surfacing uh, content on, on, on their own. So, yeah, there is some um, ways to game the system, legitimate and illegitimate ways to game the system. But again, what the president is talking about is... Um, is gaming the system for political reasons. And again, I just don't think that's happening, but it's part of this broader complaints that we've heard more recently than than previous years uh, about bias by U.S. internet companies against conservative voices or, or censorship or suppressing conservative points of view. Again, I think most of those are bogus yeah. um, and are, are basically done for political reasons, but it, it has become impossible for the internet companies to ignore. One question that I have is, what can Congress or, frankly, the president himself do? I I, I don't know what Larry Kudlow is talking about um, in <laughs> well, terms of what what they could do to regulate search results. Some members of Congress have talked about cracking down on a law that essentially protects internet companies from legal liability from content posted by their users, and um, that I think would be a real risk to internet companies, Google and others. I just don't know what the odds are of that law changing
0: well done thank you very much for enlightening us as always shira oviday our bloomberg technology opinion writer knows everything about technology have you got a new iphone yet <laughs> S- still yet. my old iphone still still the <laughs> old one all right maybe we'll take up a collection for you <laughs> thanks very much for being with us The S&P 500 is up about 8.5% so far this year. Jim Paulson is the chief investment strategist for the Luthold Group. They're based in Minneapolis. They help to manage more than $1.5 billion. Jim Paulson, always a pleasure to hear what you've got to say about investing. And I'm wondering, what is this term called capacity challenge? You talk about the bull market is now capacity challenge. What does that mean?
3: Yeah. Well, one of the things, Pim, that I always think about is, you know, just the question we get lost in: is there a lot of downside risk in this market or not? But I think an equally important question is just how much potential is left in this bull market, whether it, you know, whether it goes up uh, for for uh, several more years or not. Just how much upside is there? And I think it comes down to how much capacity does this bull market have left to improve things that will make the market go higher. And if you just look at some of the central things, if you think about P.E. multiples or valuation, you know, they're, right now the trailing P.E. multiples in the 82nd percentile of post-war uh, history. Uh, it could move up, but not a lot. Bond yields, they don't have much room or interest rates in general to move lower anymore. They're kind of spent on that regard the unemployment rate below 4%. It's not like we could push that a lot lower at least not without issues like overheat and other cost and interest rate pressures. Profit margins are record highs for the S&P 500. They not a lot of room there, which means probably at best earnings grow at sales, even and it could be worse at margin erode. And then finally confidence we just reported Consumer confidence today and it went up almost to post-war highs
0: yeah so if high. you
3: think about what to get potential on this market what lever are you going to push at this point or improve to get the market to continue to go higher
1: all right so given that how are you allocating
3: well you know at what, least what we're doing is I, I think there's the other the other big issue is recession and if we don't have recession then the likelihood of a bear market is not great. We have had uh, bear markets without recessions, but not frequently. I don't see the elements of recession right now. So I I don't think I'd exit the stock market per se, but what I would do is diversify today in a much bigger way than I have up till now. And and I'll just throw out a few things you might want to consider in that regard. I certainly would overrate the international markets relative to the United States. I think most of the risk uh, and excess and over-optimism and stretched values are in the domestic marketplace. I'd look to the international markets both developed and emerging uh, in a bigger way that have been already beat up pretty solidly and under-owned and are better values. I'd also raise a little cash. If uh, the Fed's going to pay you 2% now, finally, to have that asset and if we hit an air pocket of panic you have some dry powder to buy someone else's uh, what someone else wants to give away. I'd look to add a commodity ETF uh, in lieu of equity exposure. Uh, From here at a 3.9% unemployment rate if we continue to grow in this recovery I think we're going to continue to exacerbate inflation pressure and commodities might outperform stocks in the balance. I'd allocate some to a hedge fund uh, They don't make much sense if the market's going to go up 20% a year, but a hedge fund that can give you mid to upper single-digit returns without the downside risk of the stock market, I think makes good sense now in the balance of this recovery. I'd add a little gold. Um, It's been beat up, and if there is any panic along the way here between now and the end, gold would uh, probably do pretty well. The sector exposures, I'd barbell my exposure from here. I'd still own some cyclical sectors, primarily inflation beneficiaries like energy and industrials and materials, financials. But I'd also barbell that with traditional defensive sectors, whether it be low vol or, or dividend aristocrats or, or the utilities and staples um, in lieu from here. And then finally, I'd look to defang my portfolio. If, you, if you've owned some of the most popular fang stocks, um, I would congratulate yourself, pat yourself in the back, and then let someone else own them from here. It might still own some technology, but i 'd look to do that away from those overpopulized over uh, names that that leaves you in this market if it continues to climb, but it gives you a completely different risk profile on the downside uh, should the market that 's getting old uh, come apart at some point Jim Paulson. Uh
0: it certainly sounds like you're preparing for something that is not good with the purchase of gold, adding to cash, by a hedge fund, lock in some low-priced commodities, right? Well, I think the, uh,
3: yeah, I, I really think, Pim, that the uh, what I'm struggling with, I think the bull could last a while, but I don't think its upside is going to be that great. I think it's going to deliver buy-and-hold S&P 500, probably delivers mid-single-digit returns in the balance of this recovery at best. And um, so if that's the case, there's other assets now that have very competitive profiles to that type of return profile, and they offer those without the risk that you're exposed to late in a bull market in, in just uh, long-only equities.
1: Wait, this is actually a really important point. What is the return target that is re- reasonable for investors to go after in order to sort of uh, figure out what could be potentially valuable to hold, to own?
3: Yeah, I. there's a lot of things that I look at, you know, uh, Lisa, like if you look historically from 4% unemployment rates or less, what's the return of the market? If you look at p movables where they are uh, historically what's the return of the market going forward if you look at where intra market correlations are today that are low what's the return of the market and a lot of those things when you come when you deal with them come up around uh, on average like 5% buy and hold total returns i think that's what we're looking at now in the public us marketplace uh, particularly among large cap stocks and with the potential that ultimately a bear comes and there's downside risk. If that, that's kind of the profile, you don't necessarily want to be completely out of it. What if it goes on for another three years? Okay, But on the other hand, I think there's other things, to Pim's point, commodities, cash, hedge funds, other things that can match that return, if not do better, and don't have near the risk profile at the end of it.
1: Jim Paulson, thank you so much for being with us. Jim Paulson is chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group overseeing about one and a half billion dollars from Minneapolis.
0: Our next guest says that President Donald Trump doesn't understand how much NAFTA has enriched the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Joe Nocera is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and you can follow Joe on Twitter at NoceraBV. All right, Joe Nocera, tell us why the president doesn't understand what NAFTA has done.
4: First of all, you can now follow me on Opinion underscore Joe. I, sw- I switched okay my, i was asked to switch my handle is that like we're no longer
0: calling it nafta we're calling it something the
4: u.s mexico trade agreement yes that maybe canada will be allowed to be part of or not depending on how nicely they tra- they, they negotiate with us yeah yeah that's gonna happen sure um I I started thinking about this uh, a while back when I was in uh, South Texas. And uh, if you go to South Texas, if you go to McAllen or El Paso or any any of the towns on the border, what you see is prosperity. You really do in a way that did not exist when I lived in Texas in the 1980s before NAFTA passed. And if you ask anybody there, they will very specifically say this is due to NAFTA. And if you look at the trade statistics, you know... um, Uh, trading has dramatically increased between the three countries. And when trade increases, jobs increase. And so, um, you know, the idea that NAFTA is the worst deal ever, or whatever it is the president says, is just baloney.
1: Okay, fair enough. There have been some jobs, though, that have been lost as a result of NAFTA uh, in the U.S. in terms of, say, car companies that have decided to build cars in Mexico rather than the U.S. because labor is cheaper there. So let's say, yes, net-net, there have been more jobs created than lost. Couldn't you make the argument that it could be tweaked to be better so that uh, there was a, a more significant benefit for the United States?
4: Uh, I, I My own belief is that um, the real crime here was outside of the sphere of NAFTA in the, uh, in the, in the way that the United States with the government uh, just kind of ignored the people who lost their jobs. Uh, there was no retraining. There wasn't a whole lot of economic benefits. Um, and I think that, you know yes, maybe it could be tweaked to make it a little better for the United States. Maybe they have this new uh, thing in it that says uh, a certain percentage of the content has to be made by workers making $16 an hour, uh, which is double what um, um, the day rate is in Mexico. So maybe that will be something that, that does that. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, NAFTA has created these complex supply chains that if you try to muck with them, you are going to really wreck the, the entire system in which ca- the way cars are built uh, and many other things, too. Uh, th- one of the things about low tariffs is they allow for, you know, uh, factories to be put on both sides of the border and parts uh, and uh, various other things to go back and forth across the border as they as they make the parts and as they make the car. And, and all of this is a net good and a job creator. Joe, no, Sarah,
0: is this just politics?
4: Well, some would say it's a diversion tactic for the president, given uh, what's been happening the last few days. That's that's one thing. It's uh, worth noting that the deal with Mexico isn't even completed. I mean, it's not even done yet. And they're declaring victory. Um, and, and third, there's the whole Canada aspect of it, which is that, you know, how are you really going to have a NAFTA if you don't have Canada in it? It's, it's kind of ridiculous.
1: I want to home in on something that you were talking about, where what the the jobs that were lost, there was uh, some sort of lack of action on the part of, if not the government, and somebody else, in terms of retraining some of these employees. Which regions are you talking about, and is this part of what we're seeing with persistently high uh, underemployment rates among white
4: working age men in particular? I think that's exactly right. I think the regions we're talking about is is you know the Northeast, the the Michigan's, the uh, Indianas, uh, the, the, the Pennsylvania's the, that part of the country. Swing states. The, yeah, swing states with uh, with white men who vote for Donald Trump. which is also really telling because it's right ahead of
1: uh, the midterm elections, which makes me wonder how much trying to come to some to agreement or trying to say things are going to be better uh, in particular for for car makers or people who have those jobs. how much is that playing exactly to the midterm election? conversation
4: uh, i think it's i think it's part of it but i don't think it's all of it because you know three months from now there will be no effective change nothing will have changed it's it's too it's too soon it's too quick but i'm sure that's part of the, i'm sure that's part of the way he's thinking about it
1: best case scenario do you think that uh, nothing changes except for a name and uh president trump can declare victory but the trades the, the supply chains just continue as they were
4: that is the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is, the, is that this constant bullying of Canada forces Canada to, to act in a, in a drastic way uh, that causes some of this to fall apart. Like what? Uh, that, Canada, that Canada, that they don't have an agreement, that, that maybe NAFTA goes away. Maybe, he does, maybe the president does throw NAFTA out the window, um, which would be a terrible thing. Terrible for the economy and uh, terrible for the three nations. More terrible for Canada than the United States? probably yeah probably it's a smaller economy it's more dependent on the united states yeah absolutely every everybody's backed into a corner here Canada's backed into the corner. United States is backed into the corner.
1: Well, hold on a second. Let's take a step back, because President Trump can't do this on his own. He needs Congress to step up behind him and actually uh, ratify something. So, you know, he could say whatever he wants, but it doesn't seem like Congress is necessarily 100 percent on board here, especially considering the fact that Congress is probably going to change in composition uh, following this fall.
4: Uh, that's true, but it's hard to know how the Democratic Congress would react to um to a new NAFTA or rechanged NAFTA, and second of all, um, I may be wrong about this, and I could I could well be wrong about this, but but doesn't the president have the ability to abrogate the agreement without Congress? Uh huh.
0: There's a question. I, I think
1: that they need six months though to even yes. take it up and and to decide. Right. So I mean. I don't know. Good question. I think good question. I don't know. There are some steps he could take by himself. But my understanding is for any substantive change in the agreement, it really does have to be signed off by Congress. Am I wrong on that?
4: I I believe I'm sure that's right. For any new trade agreement. There's one other factor here, which is that if they don't have an agreement by this Friday, and this is what makes it so ridiculous. Right. If they don't have an agreement by this Friday, the six month time span bumps into the new Mexican president's tenure. And who knows what he's going to want who knows if he's going to say i want this exactly the way it is or if he's going to have his own series of changes what happened on monday is really kind of inexplicable not in terms of the politics of it but in terms of the policy implications in can i just ask you in the details of all of this when
0: you talk about let's say automobiles right Uh suvs and crossover vehicles ...are what Detroit really wants to sell. But those are made in the United States still. That's my point, that all of this consternation and challenge between, let's say, United States and Canada or United States and Mexico, you got Ford announcing they're not even going to make sedans except for the
4: Mustang. Right. Right. So, I mean... right. Sedans are being made in the American South by non-union American labor. Right. Trucks and SUVs are being made in Detroit because they can make a profit paying, uh, you know, $16, $18 an hour. Right. And uh, American sedans- And in Kansas City. And and American sedans are being made in Mexico. I mean, it's pretty simple. Right.
1: I just want to give people a sense of how the new NAFTA, and I put NAFTA in quotes because President Trump would like to change the name of it, how it would uh, differ from the old one. Probably the biggest has to do with the auto industry, as we were just talking about, uh, which would require that 75 percent of car content be made in the U.S. or Mexico. Uh, Under the current agreement, that is a a minimum of 62.5 percent. Also, to Joe's point, it's the 16 per hour uh, wages for workers who are working on these autos. So uh, definitely, um, definitely a focus here on the auto industry. And I wonder how it's playing in the auto industry. I wonder how Detroit is looking at this, given the fact that they look to be the main subject here.
4: Right. Well, Detroit does not really want to mess with NAFTA the way it is. They, they just don't. And uh, you know, the idea that the, that, that the president is going to insist that a certain number of uh, workers make $16 an hour, that, that, that's going to stick in their craw. And anything that mucks up their supply chain, they've spent years creating these supply chains. Um, uh, and anything that mucks up the supply chain, they will not be happy with.
1: All right. Dono Sarah thank you so much. Always a pleasure having you on.
4: It's always a pleasure to be on the Pym and Lisa show.
1: Oh, Dono Sarah is a Bloomberg opinion columnist writing on all things, all things. Consumers are really confident right now. That is according to a whole host of consumer confidence measures. But what does this say about the economy going forward? Joining us now is Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators at the Conference Board, as well as our own Yelena Shilyetyeva, Senior U.S. Economist at Bloomberg uh, Economics. Lynn, let's start with you. We do have a new uh, conference board, Consumer uh, Confidence Index, out. What do we know?
5: Uh, we know that consumers uh, continue to sort of ride this uh, confidence high, so to speak. So we've had extremely long, uh, strong levels now for, for more than a year. And I think what this is telling us is that we're going to expect sort of a, a strong second half with growth around 3.5%.
0: This is the best level since October of 2000.
5: Absolutely. And it's coming on both fronts. They're telling us, A, that present situation has improved, both in terms of business conditions and employment, which are two key pillars of confidence. And expectations have uh, have rebounded as well uh, after back-to-back monthly losses there. So uh, looking ahead, consumers expect more solid growth. All right. So, Yelena, come on in here. What does it tell you
1: about the sort of where we are in the credit cycle or where we are in the economic cycle that consumer confidence is so high.
6: Absolutely. But first of all, the conference board um, survey uh, directly asks questions about the labor market. And and such strengths that we are seeing in the conference board survey today really reflects uh, the state of the labor market right now that is strong. The unemployment rate is falling. So, and that's uh, what we should expect, like strong growth in payrolls, like Next week, that's what we expect. In terms of economic cycle, we look at different kinds of indicators. The conference board survey, the Michigan survey, and there's a big discrepancy between the two. The gap is widening. So that is a little bit concerning in terms of the economic cycle because usually the conference board peaks uh, towards the end of economic cycle, whereas uh, the Michigan survey reflects uh, economic growth uh, trends in general. But I think as long as we have income growth, and that's uh, what is flashing really green in each and every survey, so uh, we should expect business cycle to continue.
0: What about consumer spending? And first of all, I just want to congratulate you and welcome you on your return from maternity leave. Thank and you, Best P. wishes and congratulations on your new addition to your family. And I'm sure that that is causing some expenditures, not only on your part, but uh, on the part of members of your family. And, and to that point, looking at the survey, if you're in the automobile business, get ready. People say that they're going to buy a new car. Same thing with homes, major appliances and carpeting, everyone seems to be out there buying.
6: Everything went up and the conference board survey uh, plans to buy within six months. that is a very positive development. And again, we look at different kinds of uh, surveys. In the Michigan survey, uh, the uh, conditions to buy actually deteriorated slightly. So as economists, we have to uh, look at uh, a wide array of uh, different surveys and factors. And this is one to watch for sure, because as prices go higher, people might find uh, it less affordable to buy stuff.
1: So Lynn, come on in here. I'm interested in this idea. It's a very strong labor market. People are feeling confident as a result of that. And yet real wages, once you strip out inflation, have actually declined uh, over the past year. How do
5: you square these two things? Uh, Well, I think the fact that uh, strong labor market growth has also led to more employed consumers and hence more consumers that can spend. Uh, As Yelena pointed out, um, you know, projections are for the labor market to remain relatively strong for the remainder of the year. Our income expectations are actually up, so consumers are pretty positive about their earning potential. And I think this strong confidence level reflects a, a willingness to spend. However, you know, if prices begin to rise and inflation begins to rear its head then we you know consumers ability to purchase uh, items diminishes a little bit but for right now it looks like we're on very strong footing uh, both in terms of confidence in terms of spending and in terms of economic growth for the remainder of the year
0: all right so more of the
5: same uh, more of the same. And while I know it's, you know, 90 plus degrees out there, uh, it's not too soon to start thinking about the holiday season. And if we continue in this confident mode with this uh, ability to spend and a willingness to spend, it could shape up to be a, a good season for retailers. All right, then. Well, and it has been
1: a good season for retailers throughout the year. So uh, that wouldn't be new. I still have to wonder at what point our wage is going to increase uh, more than inflation. Lynn, just in 30
5: seconds, do you have a thought on that? Uh, I think we're going to continue to see pressure by this tight labor market, and we should begin to see, hopefully, some wage increases uh, in in the coming months. Do you agree with that, Yelena?
6: Absolutely. It's just more gradual, uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, non-wage compensation like benefits and things like Ah. that, so that's another factor.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Much appreciated. Of course, uh, Yelena Shulieteva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. And Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators for the Conference Board. And that uh, consumer confidence certainly indicated by the performance today of the shares of Tiffany.
1: Yeah, the although shares- you nailed it with when you have kids, that's when your money flies out the window. And, and so I think that the low birth rate might have to do with, uh, you know, if people start to have babies, that money gets spent. Just really? saying. That's mm, a yeah. shocker.
3: Yeah. Well done. <laughs>